the first 50 years of the American Bar Association, I have a book about Fort Union Trading Post National Historic Site in North Dakota. And I taught after I published the book, the University of Nebraska published it in 2001. And I taught for many years um, after that at Bob Jones. And I never met anybody who had ever been to that fort. It's on the border of North Dakota and Montana. And I would bet that there's nobody in this room who has ever been there. <laughs> so nobody's going to read the book because nobody has ever heard of it. Since Reformation weekend talks seem to privilege anniversaries with dates that end in a zero or two, we'll begin by noting that Bob Jones Sr., formerly Robert Reynolds Jones Sr., was born 140 years ago this coming Monday. His birthday is October 30th, and he was born in 1883. So Bob Jones Sr. was born the same year as novelist Franz Kafka, the economist John Maynard Keynes, and the Italian dictator Benito Mussolini. <laughs> to the non-native, the um, southeastern part of Alabama is an unlikely spot on which to fix sentimental affection. Southeast Alabama is full of sandy soil that was once dominated by longleaf pine trees and clumps of wire grass, which you see back here. Now it has to be grown it's almost, it's not extinct, but it, it only grows in really bad soil, and the soil's improved so much in the last 150 years that it's, you have to go to a special place where they grow it now. In the early night, but the whole area is called the wiregrass, so that's, so I will refer to the wiregrass. In the early 19th century, before the discovery of artificial fertilizers, farmers considered the piney woods and sandy soil worthless and bypassed them. Southeast Alabama was the last part of the state um, that was settled in the region, which you wouldn't guess from, I mean, you'd figure it'd be the west part of Alabama, but we're talking about um, right in here. Dothan um, doesn't even exist on this map. This is 1850. And if you look at the top, you know, the top's Huntsville and then Montgomery and then Mobile down here, um, and you see the roads and such in 1850, um, you realize that the southeastern corner is, is nearly empty. Dothan, the eventual hub of the region, wasn't incorporated until 1885, when it maybe had 25 residents. The railroad reached the town in 1889, the same year a gunfight broke out on Main Street, leaving two men dead and the sheriff seriously wounded. The county in which Bob Jones was reared, Houston County, wasn't organized until 1903, and by that time, 1903, Bob Jones was already several years into his evangelistic career. During Bob Jones's childhood, Southeast Alabama was a frontier, which is hard to think about the, this part of the world being a frontier. Bob Jones' father, William Alexander Jones, was an immigrant to the Wiregrass region. By, by the late 1850s, Alex Jones was farming in Barber County, which is like 25 air miles north of where he grew up, where Bob Jones grew up. In 1859, Alex married Georgia Ann Creel. Of, she was of Ulster Scots background, and by the following year, she had given birth to the first of their 12 children. During the Civil War, Alex Jones enlisted in the 37th Alabama Infantry Regiment, and he was wounded in the right knee at the beginning of the Atlanta campaign. After the war, Jones farmed near his wife's relations on October 30th, 1883, as I've said, Robert Reynolds Jones was born 
what probably was a sharecropper's farm. I'd like to know for sure, but I think, it was, I think he was sharecropping. He, wasn't, uh, he, he was born in a place called Skipperville, which is it's a hamlet. He said um, his father told him, Bob Jones said his father told him that he'd been named Robert Reynolds jo Davis Jones after two of his friends, a fellow soldier in the 7th Alabama named Robert J. Reynolds and another man named Davis. But more likely, the second honoree was the doctor who delivered the boy, Robert Davis Reynolds. Even before Alex Jones joined the Confederate Army, his family had lived near the well-to-do Reynolds family. And by the 1880s, Robert Davis Reynolds was a local celebrity because he practiced medicines despite being totally blind. He had a son that went around with a carriage and whatever. The Davis was soon dropped from the boy's name, although it appears in several biographical dictionaries, um, supposedly because his dad named him after Jefferson Davis, but that's not true. Roughly 25 years later, in a remarkably impro improbable sequence, both Robert Reynolds's were converted in back-to-back -back evangelistic campaigns conducted by Bob Jones in Ozark, Alabama, and Abbeville, Alabama, and I've been to both their graves, and these are the gravestones that you're looking at. The one, the one on the right here is the doctor, the blind doctor, Robert Davis Reynolds, MD. Three months after Bob Jones' birth, the family moved to Brandon Stand, six miles west of Dothan. Alex Jones built a log house on the new farm, cutting logs himself. This is not the house, um, but this house, interestingly enough, is now in Dothan in their historical park, and it mo was moved from Skipperville, which is just one of those crazy things. Now, one of the bad parts about this, the, the house is probably pretty, pretty accurate, but the foliage behind the house is, 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 it looks more like we're used to here. The foliage is probably gonna look more like this. This is more like the wiregrass region. Like most families in the area, the Jones family was poor. They raised cotton and sweet potatoes. They owned some hogs and cattle. They grew most of their own food. Although Alex Jones also planted peanuts, for a crop for which uh, mechanized processing had just developed. From early childhood, Bob Jones minded horses, ran cattle, drew water from a 60-foot well. At nine, he hoed and picked cotton. He could plow a straight furrow. From the family's garden, he peddled vegetables door to door in Dothan. This on the left is the um, what's left of the well. Um, now I don't think it was bricked in in his day, but it's the, it's the place where the well was in his homestead. And behind it, you can see a luxurious house on a golf, it's a golf community there. And if you look on the right, it says Robert Ch Trent Jones Golf Trail. And if you're really smart and you know that there was a golfer named Bob jo Bobby Jones, you'd say, aha, that must be Bobby Jones's, but it's not. <laughs> this is another guy named Bob Jones. What do you think the odds are on that? He was a golf course designer. So, so Bob Jones's homestead is in the middle of the Robert Trent Jones golf trail. What's that? Jones joked that his family ate only one meal a day because the other two meals were eaten in the dark before sunrise and after sunset. In adulthood, Bob Jones had false teeth, his dental problems probably caused by a lack of calcium in his earliest years. When he was older, it bothered him to see fruit wasted. As a child, 
He once saw some discarded orange peels in a, in a Dothan alleyway. He checked to see if anyone was looking, and then he ate them. Perhaps because his family was taken from him so early, Jones regularly reminisced about his childhood. His fondest memories were of the little house on the prairie sort, family gathered around the hearth, sharing buttermilk, soda biscuits, chicken pie, roasting peanuts, roasting potatoes, popping corn. He swam in the creek, had brothers and sisters enough for ball games, girls playing right along with the boys. His father, Alex Jones, was a wiry, bantam rooster of a man with a fierce temper and by 21st century standards, an exaggerated sense of personal honor. At home, Alex Jones' word was law, and he disciplined the children with the ramrod of a muzzle-loading shotgun. At least in distant remembrance, Bob Jones thought it was just what he needed. Alex Jones had been a drinker in his youth, and his fiery temper persisted after his conversion. Once in the late 1890s, after the grown son of a neighbor insinuated that Alex was trying to cheat his father, it took Georgia Jones and all the available children to prevent Alex, then over 60 years old, from seriously injuring the young man. Alex Jones also had a reflective side. As one Alabama history put it, during the late 19th century, to be rural, even to be uneducated, bore no relationship to intelligence. Alex was almost certainly the first to recognize the exceptional gifts of his 11th child. Bob Jones' love for his mother was intense. Jones, yeah, this, 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 um, this is another cabin, this one from the 1951 film, um, the first film produced by Unusual Films. Um, Bob Jones' love for his mother was he, he said he doubted anyone had ever loved his mother more, and it's difficult to overestimate the influence of both her early influence in his life and her subsequent memory. He alluded to her in countless sermons. A BJU dormitory is named after her. The first BJU film dramatized her death. She seems to have been a gentle, cheerful woman. Over 40, when her 11th child was born, she was in Jones's memory always an old woman with gray-streaked auburn hair, in those days, there was no electricity, plumbing, or central heating to ease the ceaseless labors of farm women. When Georgia Creel Jones invited the whole church home for dinner after Sunday service, she had to start cooking on Thursday. Jones said she never looked rested until she was in her coffin. Georgia Jones was a Calvinistic Baptist who wondered if she had been numbered with the elect. Her husband was no less a devout Methodist. The Methodists had the only church in the vicinity, and so the Joneses were Methodists. Usually services were held only once a month on a Saturday evening and the following Sunday morning. Though once they were gathered together and seated on rough benches, the audience would endure what Jones called a preaching marathon. Bob Jones sized up all the preachers, especially those that came over to his house to eat his mother's cooking. He was very sensitive about, he was a sensitive kid and, and he, he watched how these people perform with children. So preach a good gospel, you, but you were nasty to kids. That, uh, obviously, he got, he got the message. Even as a small child, Bob Jones was unusually God-conscious. His contemporaries tended to believe that children younger than 11 or 12 couldn't understand the gospel. In any case, they thought children wouldn't reach the age of accountability until then. But as a seven- or eight-year-old, Jones slipped into the woods to plead for God's mercy cried over his sinfulness, 
talked to Jesus while driving the farm wagon, and even once prayed so loudly that he woke his younger brother who was in bed with him. Noticing a tree along a deserted country road, it struck him that the tree would eventually die, but that he would have to live someplace forever. When testifying later about his conversion, Jones usually, though not always, said it had occurred during a Methodist revival when he was 11. Georgia Jones encouraged her son to be baptized by immersion. Jones found a Methodist minister who himself had been immersed and who was more than willing to put him in the creek. So although Jones joined the Southern Methodist Church before he was a teenager, even his earliest religious experience reflected the non-denominational emphasis that would characterize the rest of his ministry. Just when this ministry began is difficult to say. He was such a prodigy in the pulpit that his debut was mythologized while he was still a young man. In the 1950s, a friend joked that he had met 10,000 people who claimed to have heard Jones's first sermon. According to a childhood acquaintance, Jones had held a crowd spellbound in 1895 when he was 12, speaking on behalf of the Populist Party while standing on a dry goods box in front of a Dothan drugstore. But Jones had had plenty of speaking experience before that. He said he had always had the preaching bug. At age three, he stood on a church bench and said, let me preach. His mother rushed him out. He was soon baptizing dolls, burying cats, and sermonizing to groups of children on Sunday afternoons in the woods near his home. Sometimes adults hid behind the trees to listen. When he was about 10, Jones appeared on a Children's Day program at a Baptist church eight miles from his home, and according to a contemporary, he actually preached a sermon. Shortly thereafter, he was speaking at dinners, political gatherings, and the Farmers' Alliance. Jones credited his father for the sacrifice required to take him beyond the area's extremely limited educational opportunities. He began attending elementary school at about seven. At 10, he walked to two three-month schools, one in the summer about three miles in one direction and the other in the winter about three and a half miles in the other direction. During one six-month period, he and a neighbor girl were the only students in the school. That was the minimum necessary to have a teacher paid from public funds. Both families had other children who were of school age, but none of them could be sacrificed, that only those two could be spared from the farms. Alex also put Bob to memorizing the sort of poetry and elevated prose that was prized during the period. Bob was required to declaim to everyone who visited. I put up Casabianca, which is a poem that maybe you've heard the first line of, the boy stood on the burning deck, which was a real chestnut back in the 19th century. It, to the 21st century, it would be absolutely crazy. This little boy, because of duty, allows himself to be blown up in a ship for no good purpose. It was considered to be very heroic in the 19th century. Bob Jones rarely quoted poetry in his later sermons, but he was quite capable of resurrecting long extracts from memory if he chose to do so. Both Bob Jones and his parents hoped that he could attend high school, but there were few in the regions, region and none nearby. In 1896, a Methodist minister, Charles Jefferson Hammett, passed through the area organizing Sunday schools, and the Joneses typically extended hospitality to him. So what happens when a guest comes? Bob Jones says his peace, so he says his peace, and Hammett says, the boy should be sent to live with my family up in Kinsey, 13 miles north, 
where he could attend a place called Malalu Seminary, a sort of missionary endeavor on behalf of benighted Southerners sponsored by Northern Methodists. After the Civil War, Northern Methodists were sending money down South to educate both black people and white, and you know, can I use the expression, poor white trash? That's, that, that was what they were trying to do. So Hammett suggested that if Bob Jones was sent up to Kinsey, he could stay with the Hammetts, he could do chores around the house, and Hammett would get him a scholarship for the school. So this is, what, this is what the house looked like. It almost got saved in the last generation to become a feature in Dothan and was finally destroyed. So it doesn't exist anymore. Jones was listed in the Malalu catalog as unclassified, presumably because the limitations of his primary schooling precluded his following the academic track. At Malalu, Jones took but disliked Latin, and he feared mathematics. In later life, Jones and the Hammett children seemed to have enjoyed a mutual affection. But as a child in the late 1890s, Jones was exceptionally homesick. And as the son of the independently minded Alex, minded Alex, Bob Jones resented the Hammett children, ordering him around as if he were a servant. In later years, Jones rarely referred to his secondary uh, schooling. And he never mentioned Malalu by name, ever. I've never seen it anywhere. Yet he was a keen observer of his environment. Um, he incorporated features of Malalu into Bob Jones College. For instance, he had his college offer music and art at minimal cost, just like Malalu did. Likewise, although Malalu was Methodist supported, it didn't insist that students attend the local Methodist church, just any one of the four churches in the area that they could get to. Finally, Jones made extensive and unacknowledged use of the Malalu school motto, do right, a phrase so closely associated with Jones that a posthumous collection of his sermons and a devotional calendar of his sayings were both published under that title. Um, this is what the, this is from Google Maps. This is what the area looks like today. It's just an empty, there's nothing there at all. The whole, the whole school, um, it, it, was, it was abandoned in, uh, exactly 100 years ago. And then uh, the, the building next to it, by the way, is a, is a Methodist church, but it, it wasn't there when Malalu was. Oh, and, and you should see uh, this as well. This is um, a um, wood plaque made up with the seal of Malalu on it. And if you look, can you see it right here? The motto, do right there. The Malalu years were a watershed for Jones. He was transformed from a child to a man with virtually no adolescence between them. By his 15th year, Bob Jones was self-supporting. So he was 14, he was making his own way. He was, he, nobody was paying for him anymore after 14. In October 1897, just days shy of his 14th birthday, Jones' beloved mother died. Jones was at Malalu, unaware she was sick. He barely made it home before her passing. In later years, he often reiterated the details of her death, often with a poignancy undulled by the intervening decades. Almost 50 years later, he said that he still could not understand why God had let his mother die, breaking his heart, quote, so it would never heal. In the 1930s, he wrote that since his mother's death, he had been a sort of homeless wanderer. He would talk during holidays about having nobody, no family. He couldn't celebrate with his family. His son and his wife and his grandkids were there. He was still talking about not having a family. Not a day had passed, he said, that he did not think about his mother. 
and that on some days he would give all he had if he could just one more time feel her hand on my brow. During his evangelistic career, Jones was, um, well, I should, oh, I did the do right. So this is a, a graveyard, this is a picture of a graveyard, not the real graveyard, but this one in the 1951 film. Uh, I think it's curious that both Bob Jones Jr. and Bob Jones III are in this film. Whoops, what did they do there? Did I do something wrong? It's, it's right on my screen. The, it's working on, whoop. Came back, I think. No? Yeah, I think that'll do it. Thank you. So this is Bob Jones um, standing at his mother's grave in 1962. And he spent um, $200 to try to keep that tree and failed. So $200, I mean, you're going to have to figure that we could probably add another zero to that in modern money. Um, if you go there today, what you see is the cell, there's a cell tower in the cemetery. So instead of a pine tree, it's a cell tower. During his evangelistic career, Jones was sometimes criticized for telling deathbed stories, but he certainly came by them honestly enough. Death stalked his birth family. One brother died as an 18-year-old before Bob was born, and a sister died in childbirth within days of his own birth and in the same house. Jones was old enough to remember another sister's death in 1889. In 1900, his father slipped away in his presence. Two more sisters died in 1903. By the time he founded Bob Jones College in 1927, only two sibs remained, and he outlived the last, the last of them by, by 22 years. In Jones's childhood, visiting graves was a family ritual, his father leading the way cross-country um, to the cemetery after dinner, the family in file stopping on the way to collect wildflowers, 
his mother always crying over the graves, and after her death, his father crying. Jones tend to ex- tended to exaggerate the benefits of his Southeast Alabama childhood, often implying that if he had had more culture and education, he would have been less he would have had less manhood and less moral backbone. Jones also tended to generalize the experience of his own tightly knit family to the entire region, making the wiregrass of the 1890s the gold standard against which all other times and places could be measured. Yet Jones's own sermon illustrations reveal some of the darker aspects of his childhood in the wiregrass. When the Jones children made Saturday morning runs to the post office, they tried to usually kept to the woods to avoid drunken men in the road. Once, when he was helping a Baptist deacon remodel a church, the man told him a dirty joke. Even more shocking was the memory of a minister who preached a great gospel and then went home and slit his throat with a razor. Even before attending Malu, Jones had organized um, evangelistic meetings, walking miles to find an appropriate house, church, or school where he could hold them. Then he made the rounds of local farmhouses on foot to roust up an audience. Sometimes a good woman would invite him in to eat. Usually somebody would ask him to spend the night after the service. There was never an offering. At 13, Jones held his first weekend-long revival in a brush arbor about two miles from home. With the help of two or three men, he cut down pine branches, put up poles, and roofed over the rough structure with a lattice of branches. Logs served as benches, pine knots for illumination. 54 people were converted, and an adult organized the converts into a church. In composing sermons, Jones was mostly on his own. Coming across the book of sermon outlines, he memorized them. But because the book didn't have a cover when he got it, Jones never found out whose outlines he had memorized. Otherwise, Jones worked out his style listening to country preachers who, in turn, had adapted sermons they had read or heard. The Southern Methodist Church licensed Jones to preach at age 14. At 16, while still wrestling with math and Latin at Malaloo, the Alabama Conference assigned him charge of five small congregations, including the one he had started under the Brush Arbor. He was paid $25 a month, perhaps the equivalent of five or $600 today, though he sometimes received a salary in eggs or chickens. In old age, it still rankled him that after receiving $11 for a week of evangelistic meetings, he was accused of preaching for money. On circuit, Jones often preached to wagon loads of people on Sunday morning. By the time he got his buggy to the afternoon service, a goodly number of the earlier congregation were already there waiting to hear him again. Desperate, he prayed for another sermon. By the evening, his desperation increased because some in the crowd had come to hear him for a third time and he felt compelled to come up with yet another message. When he was much older, he claimed that creating sermons like this on the fly was the best possible training for the ministry. Preaching a country circuit also included challenges that later generations would have consigned to social services, law enforcement, or a funeral director rather than a teenage boy. Jones once unsuccessfully tried to distract a small girl from staring into her mother's coffin and saying, I want my mama. He conducted the funeral of a man who, during a drinking spree, had cursed his family and then put his head on a railroad track. Some situations were clearly beyond his ken. He drew the line at giving marital advice to women. He told them to ask someone who was married. 
Jones did have young female admirers. If not truly handsome, he was tall and well-built. At one early revival, a convert of about 17 impulsively kissed him. A sister-in-law wrote that although Jones, quote, entered into the joy of the various occasions exactly like the other boys, once in the pulpit, you could feel the presence of God. At 16, Jones held meetings at Big Creek Church, about six miles north of the Florida border, and then he was hired at $25 a month to teach a three-month school across the road. Children brought to school whatever speller their parents had in hand, and Jones often taught one-on-one -on -one from sunup until sundown. Jones often claimed that he had no experience as an educator, but this brief brush with primary school teaching seems to have persuaded him that any minimally educated person with some character could teach just about anything. Just before the school term ended, Jones was offered the pastorate of a church that paid $100 a month, perhaps $2,000 a month in purchasing power at the turn of the 21st century. Simultaneously, a wealthy Methodist steward offered to lend Jones the money to attend college. In fact, the steward, he is something like a deacon in Presbyterian church, the steward offered to give him the money. Jones snatched at the opportunity to attend college, but he refused to take the money as a gift, and he repaid it with interest. Southern University was, it, it, Southern University was the predecessor of what today is uh, Birmingham Southern, but it wasn't in Birmingham, so it was just called Southern University. It was then in Greensboro, Alabama. It's the obvious choice of college for any prospective Southern Methodist minister in the state. Founded in 1856 in West Central Alabama, it was the only Methodist institution of higher learning in Alabama to survive the Civil War, though just barely and minus its previous ample endowment. At the turn of the 20th century, the school matriculated roughly 150 students, including a few women. They were taught by half a dozen teachers, well-educated for the era, but woefully underpaid. The president was supposed to make $100 a month, just the, the amount of money that the 17-year-old was offered to pastor church. But sometimes he didn't even get his $100. Jones thought that the hard-pressed faculty demonstrated their character by living on starvation wages. He thought it was a great thing, and he, it was a trait he later prized in his own faculty. <laughs> <laughs> the teachers at Southern made no concession to Jones' reputation as a boy wonder. They refused to credit the algebra and Latin he had taken in Malaloo and shunted him off to remedial classes. Jones's grades in math and ancient languages remained abysmal. Half a century later, he said the only thing he remembered from his encounter with Greek was the alphabet. But also, not surprisingly, Jones' grades in Bible and declamation were outstanding. As a gifted public speaker at a school that emphasized public speaking, he became a popular debater and won the speech awards. In general, though, jo Jones was bored by his classes, which he characterized as, quote, cold, dead, and formal. Though Southern University endorsed traditional orthodoxy and strict standards of deportment, and inclined toward legalism leavened with expedient hypocrisy. Students were expelled for things like drinking and dancing, but Methodist church officials also forced the president to reinstate a ministerial student he had expelled for drunkenness a lesson about the need for administrative independence that Jones internalized. Still, during Jones's student years, each semester at Southern began with a revival service again. He internalized that. Jones seems to have been popular with his classmates. 
He delighted in games of mental telepathy, at which he thought he excelled, and he enjoyed playing baseball, compensating with enthusiasm for his lack of speed. He also joined a fraternity. He's, see him? Right there. Later, though, he called fraternities a disgrace because they excluded some students and divided the rest into cliques. Because he was supporting both himself and his younger brother with whom his dying mother had entrusted him, Jones struggled with debt. He regularly preached on weekends, blocking out time for study only before exams at the end of terms. Jones' meetings were soon reported in newspapers, one Louisiana weekly noting that the, noted that the church was, quote, filled to overflowing and that old men and women wept like little children. Jones' love offerings grew substantially. On one occasion, he literally carried off a pillowcase full of cash. By not enrolling for his senior year at Southern, Jones followed a course now taken by athletes. He turned pro before finishing his degree. Bob Jones was among the least materialistic of men, but two of his sisters had died while he was in, at, at uh, Southern, and he considered that supporting a host of orphan nieces and nephews would repay the investment his father had made in his early education. Jones never apologized for having left college early, though it violated one of his oft-quoted pieces of, of advice, finish the job. When he founded Bob Jones College, Jones drew on ideas about higher education that he had met at Southern, especially its emphasis on public speaking. Even the number of demerits that would result in expulsion at BJU originated in a standard laid down at Southern more than 125 years before. How many demerits in the good old days did it take to be expelled from Bob Jones? 150, that's right. See, 125 years before he said that. It was at Southern. By this time, Jones was also saving up for marriage. He'd met Bernice Sheffield um, when she attended Judson College, a Baptist girls' school in Marion, Alabama, about 20 miles from Southern. When the 16-year-old Sheffield was home for the summer of 1902, Jones supplied the Methodist circuit around her home in Lower Peachtree, Wilcox County. He thought that summer was one of the um, happiest of his life. These are two churches in the, in the circuit. I don't think anybody there in that area knows that Bob Jones preached in these buildings. Neither of them, they're both still there, but the churches aren't active churches. They're just people who come around and paint them and cut the grass every once in a while. Um, the actual town of Lower Peachtree was absolutely obliterated. Uh, F4 tornado came through in 1913 it wiped out 100 houses and killed 20, 27. If you go there, there's, no, there's literally nothing there. The town was never rebuilt. But these churches, because they weren't in the town itself, survived. Like Jones, Sheffield was both an orphan and a child of an Alabama farm family, though of substantially higher status than his. She had also benefited from unusual educational opportunities and had graduated from college with distinction at age 18. Jones had probably never even met a uh, college-educated woman before he left the Wiregrass. Bernice Sheffield seems to have been bright and amiable. She also played the piano, which was a helpful compliment for the musically challenged evangelist. He was wounded one time by a school teacher who said, Bobby, when we sing our song, please don't sing. 
if you sing, nobody else can be heard and, we, and, won't, and nobody can keep the tune. So if you just keep quiet. No, he, was, he was wounded for the rest of his life. Bernice Sheffield had um, graduated from college with distinction at age 18. Jones had probably never even met a college-educated woman before he left the Wiregrass. During the next few months, oh, uh, they were, I have to get them married. They were married in, at the Pine Hill Baptist Church on October 24th, 1905. The church doesn't exist, so I don't have a picture of that. She at once became a Methodist. During the next few months, Jones and his wife became gravely ill. First, he came down with pneumonia. Then in, in the early summer of 1906, a few months after he'd pulled through and the couple began their ministry together, Bernice evidenced symptoms of tuberculosis. He took her to Colorado Springs, a town developed around the popular and dubious notion that high-altitude dry air and mineral springs would aid recovery. When he was certain that she was instead dying, they returned to Alabama, reaching Birmingham shortly before she passed away on September 7th. 1906, two weeks before her 21st birthday. The funeral was held in the same church in which they'd been married 10 months before. In contrast to his constant references to his mother, Jones never again public men publicly mentioned his first wife, though he continued to treat the Sheffields as, as sort of an extended family. This is her grave, and uh, it's probably the fanciest um, tombstone in the place. You'll notice on the right, there's an empty space. Throwing himself back into evangelistic work, the young widower was troubled by hoarseness. A specialist diagnosed tuberculosis of the throat, which was a very real and a very deadly disease. By October, Jones was in San Antonio, another popular and dubious resort for tuberculosis sufferers. He thought his career and probably his life might soon be over. There in San Antonio, sick and brokenhearted, Jones was introduced to a medium, one Madame Schurls, a German woman who spoke only feeble English. Jones attended her seances and after, ever after believed that for three months he had, quote, sat at the feet of the greatest spirit medium on the American continent. Although he later thought most spiritualists were fakes, he always believed his Madame Schurls had real supernatural power. She was at least very convincing. Everything she did was done in broad daylight. Sheryls introduced Jones to deceased relatives he had never heard of. Sheryls even imitated the tone of his beloved mother. The turning point, he said, came when he asked the spirit of his mother about Jesus. The woman laughed and said, Jesus was not just another medium. Jones then decided that he had been consulting with a familiar spirit and that Sheryls' power was satanic. Remarkably, Jones claimed that before he met Sheryls, he knew nothing about spiritualism, though it had attracted more than 11 million adherents in the decade before his birth. Shortly after renouncing spiritualism, Jones recovered from his illness and returned to Alabama, insisting he'd, be, he'd been cured through the prayers of fellow Christians. He never endorsed faith healing, faith healers, but he always believed in faith healing. In April 1907, Jones began a, an eight-day series of meetings in Uniontown, uh, Alabama, a community of about 1,000 people in Alabama's um, fertile black belt. There, Jones received a love offering of $400, roughly $20,000 in purchasing power 100 years later. 
An attractive woman followed Jones around town, an embarrassment both because residents knew she was infatuated with the boyish widower and because Jones was attracted to another handsome young woman, Mary Gaston Stallenwerk. Few white Alabamians were as far apart in socioeconomic background as Jones and Stallenwerk. In contrast to the evangelist's frontier hard scrabble, Stallenwerk had been reared in high privilege among families that reached back to the origins of the state, the 1% literally of the economic level in Alabama. Her mother's family had owned several plantations, perhaps as many as 10, and hundreds of slaves. Following the death of her father when she was five, Mary Gaston was reared by her maternal grandparents. Her uncle, who was her legal guardian and her namesake, Gaston Stallenwerk, was wealthy, childless, and devoted to her. Her mother, Estelle Telly Siddons Stallenwerk, was exceptionally well-educated for a woman of her place and generation, fluent in French, and a great reader. After finishing high school, Mary Gaston might have attended college had she not been afflicted with incapacitating headaches. I think maybe she just needed glasses. Although Mary Gaston was a Methodist and Sunday school teacher, she admitted that before she heard Jones preach, she was, quote, somewhat worldly. During Jones's Uniontown campaign, she was either converted or she rededicated her life to God. She herself seemed unsure which. Jones and Stallenwerk were married at her grandmother's home on June 17, 1908, 14 months after they first met. She was 18, he was 23. From the start, their 60-year marriage was both a professional and personal success. Mary Gaston was a stylish dresser with a cultural polish her husband esteemed and envied. She viewed him as just the sort of strong yet sympathetic husband she had always envisioned. Still, she had confidence enough to express her own opinions, and Bob Jones was wise enough to respect them. Mary Gaston became Jones's domestic bulwark, the disciplinarian of their only son, and an amiable hostess, indispensable to his roles as evangelist and college president. With the marriage came Telly Stallenwerk, who you Bob Jones people all know as Estelle Siddons. She made her home with the Joneses until her death at 84. Rarely has a relationship between son-in-law and mother-in-law been so amiable. Jones, always in quest of family, called her mother and treated her with the utmost respect and deference. By 1908, in his 24th year, Bob Jones had achieved a depth of maturity unusual for a man twice his age. He'd been financially independent for 10 years. He'd worked his way through high school and three years of college. He'd married twice and suffered the loss of both parents, most of his siblings, and his first wife. He'd practiced his chosen profession for more than half his life. And now at 25, he was poised to take part in the final phase of the interdenominational urban evangelism a religious movement that had originated more than 30 years earlier under D.L. Moody. By the time Bob Jones began his evangelistic career at the turn of the 20th century, the term evangelist implied a full-time, usually interdenominational director of urban meetings who used a colloquial preaching style, emphasized altar calls, and often promoted social reforms such as prohibition. Urbanization, technological change, and a higher standard of living played their own roles in the rise of mass evangelism. People who lived in cities had more leisure time to attend a campaign. It's obviously harder to do that if you have regular farm chores. City dwellers also had more money to support evangelistic campaigns. Improved transportation made attendance easier, and the spread of electric lighting during the 1890s made nighttime illumination safer and cheaper. 
The most influential of all these evangelists was Dwight L. Moody, who in October 1875 inaugurated a series of record-breaking campaigns in Brooklyn, Philadelphia, New York, Chicago, and Boston. In doing so, he established the core characteristics of the turn-of-the-century urban evangelist. Though Moody himself wasn't a flamboyant speaker, his religious campaigns were well-advertised, well-organized, and interdenominational. His meetings, in which music played a significant role, were sometimes held in specially constructed buildings and attracted thousands who were exhorted through public invitations to accept Jesus Christ as Savior. Bob Jones never met Moody. Moody died when Jones was 16. But Jones became well acquainted with many of Moody's associates. Jones called R.A. Torrey, the second president of Moody Bible Institute, a great blessing in my early life. Beginning in 1913, Jones served for more than a year as an associate evangelist with the Extension Department of Moody Bible Institute. During this period, Jones also developed a profound respect for James M. Gray, the third president of Moody Bible Institute. And from both these men, he learned the problems and advantages of running your own school your own way. Another considerable influence on Bob Jones was Samuel Porter Jones, Sam Jones except for Moody, the most famous evangelist of the late 19th century. By the way, Bob Jones and Sam Jones weren't related, although newspapers tried to make that connection. Sam Jones was distinctive to the point of eccentricity, and like his younger contemporary, he was a Southerner, a Methodist, and a platform master of immense natural gifts. Newspapers referred to him as the Moody of the South. Other evangelists also shaped Bob Jones's career and style, including Billy Sunday, the most celebrated of all American evangelists of the period. Sunday and Jones struck up a warm friendship despite the 20-year difference in their ages. If Jones had held his campaigns in major cities, he might have held services in public buildings, but the large towns and small cities where he usually campaigned rarely had a suitable hall, especially one that could be rented day and night for three to six weeks. By 1914, he usually held meetings in specially built tabernacles, these tabernacles were status symbols for both the evangelists who could fill them and for the towns that could afford to put them up. Jones's advance man would estimate the size of the building needed, though usually Jones's campaigns ended up with crowds larger than could be seated in the buildings anyway. The advance man brought the raw material, arranged for the construction of a barn-like structure with a tar paper roof like the one you see here. Rough benches, speaking platform, Occasionally, the campaign paid workmen, but usually church members, sometimes hundreds of them working together, volunteered their labor to put it up in a weekend or a day. Professionals superintended the work. Women served lunch. Stoves were installed for winter meetings. Adjustable dormer windows were um, supplied a modicum of ventilation. Rough interiors were decorated with flags or bunding, as well as hand-lettered signs that said things like, repent. Jesus saves or get right with God. There were some bare arc lights, electric lights that illuminated the hall, although during the sermon, the platform lights were all turned off except for one high-powered lamp that was shown on the preacher. The bare ground was covered with several inches of sawdust or shavings. Everybody says it's to keep down the sound, which is true enough, but also to keep people's feet warm because otherwise they'd be right on the ground. Heavy rain was more than a nuisance. Tabernacles might leak, and the noise of a downpour could drown out the preacher. 
Musical directors urged audience members to cut into their handkerchiefs, and the campaign tried to make preemptive strikes against crying babies. Jones said that because babies never appreciated his sermons, children under three were not allowed in the tabernacle. You have to understand that the, the, the building is extremely live. He's talking to 5,000 or 10,000 people at once with no amplification. So he's going to be running back and forth and hollering as loud as he could to make himself... If, when you have a building like this that makes all the sound bounce off the sides, the problem is that any kid, any baby crying is going to wipe you out. The, the sound is just going to reverberate through the building. So that's... People complain about Billy Sunday doing the same thing, you know, trying to make sure that they, he, didn't, he got the crying, crying babies out of there before they started to cry. Jones' advances man... Or, Advanced Man organized cottage prayer meetings that met both before and during the campaign. For instance, in Manfield, Ohio in 1916, there were 42 prayer meeting locations with as many as 10 to 25 women attending each session. Locations were often published in the newspapers and white flags sometimes marked the houses where prayer meetings were being held. Conducting a multi-week evangelistic campaign required skill in running what was, in effect, a small business. And Jones demonstrated a natural flair for sound management. Depending on the size of the town and the length of the campaign, he employed as many as 12 staff members, one or more of whom usually were related in some way to Moody Bible Institute. In 1916, Jones had seven assistants, an advanced man, a music director, a secretary, a personal assistant, a pianist, a woman's Bible teacher, and a tabernacle custodian, all of whom had other responsibilities. For instance, the pianist gave talks to high school girls, and the custodian evangelized young businessmen. Beyond their responsibilities at evening services, team members spoke to factory workers, working women, and school children. Women's staff members might give talks to young women who worked in stores and factories, employers often donating some minutes in the morning or during the lunch hour, in some towns, a staff member met with children. In others, Bob Jones himself spoke in schools or had the children marched into the tabernacle. Sometimes Jones even gave come-forward invitations in public schools. As was typical of other citywide campaigns, Jones and his staff promoted participation at evening services through what was called the delegation system. That is, occupational and fraternal groups were offered reserved seats on certain evenings and encouraged to attend the service en masse, thus reinforcing the evangelist's appeal with crowd psychology. For instance, on one night in Cambridge, Ohio, employees of the local sheet and tin plate mills paraded from the courthouse to the tabernacle. The following evening, it was the turn of the Moose Lodge members and their wives who were preceded to the tabernacle by the order's band in full regalia. In St. Petersburg, Florida, the largest delegation came from the labor unions. Warming up tabernacle visitors before the preaching was the responsibility of the evangelist's music director. For three years during this, of the earliest campaigns, Jones traveled with one Lemuel Gilruth, a devout personal worker who seems not to have been cut after the jovial pattern of most of his contemporaries. But while still in his 40s, Gilruth's voice failed, and he was forced to leave the ministry shortly before his untimely death in 1910. The four musicians who followed Gilruth on Jones's platform were far more affable and relaxed. One led crowds in whistling. By 1915, Jones usually employed either Harry Storrs, seen here, 
or Lauren Jones, no relation, as a musical director. It's a pain to write about two people named Jones in the same manuscript. Here's, um, here's Jones with Lauren Jones. Lawrence Jones is the guy in the back here, right? Right here. I think he's goofing off. Uh, this is a megaphone. Uh, he's making it look like a dunce cap over Jones's head. Just having a good time. Often, Lauren Jones' wife, Laura, never called Laura. She was always called Mrs. Lawrence Jones. Um, played the piano. Lauren Jones was a dramatic tenor, played a variety of musical instruments, was a passable ventriloquist, and like Homer Rodeheaver, performed magic tricks for the kiddies. By the way, if you're familiar with Bob Jones, the house directly across the street where the dentist is located, that was Lauren Jones's house. And he, the dentist knows, so. The line between gospel song service and vaudeville was easily crossed. Lauren Jones was not beyond announcing that on a certain evening, he would serve hot rolls to the choir. And on the night appointed, he would reveal hidden snare drums on which he would execute hot rolls during the choir number. Congregations applauded virtually everything on the program. Solos, choir numbers, salient points made the, by the evangelist, even penitents with bowed heads moving down the aisles during invitations. When eyebrows were raised at this practice, Jones defended it, arguing that if people applauded other worthwhile things, then why not a good song or someone's coming to Christ? Still, even Jones sometimes wearied of all that hoopla. Sometimes to refocus the audience before a sermon, Jones would have the crowd stand and sing a hymn, often his favorite, Amazing Grace. From the moment jo Jones stepped onto the tabernacle platform, he was utterly focused on his message. Mary Gaston said that he, awaiting his moment to speak, he behaved almost like a chained animal. Reporters often noted Jones' strenuous delivery, hardly surprising given the necessity of communicating to the thousands in this era before electronic communication. Jones sometimes referred to a small Bible in his hand, but he never used notes. Reporters who sat close to the podium were fascinated as he stalked back and forth with sweat coursing down his cheeks. Jones himself thought that there was, quote, no exhilaration that ever came to mortal man that surpassed preaching to a great crowd. In fact, he, he liked it so much he was afraid of it. He, he, he thought he was maybe enjoying the thrill of this speaking too much. In a 1913 interview, Jones defended the platform style of his friend Billy Sunday, saying he had no objection to sensationalism when it saved souls. But Jones also said, he said, quote, no, there was no virtue in smashing a chair over a table or banging a potted fern to pieces on the platform. After his death, Mary Gaston took pride in the fact that although her husband had been forceful and had even pointed his finger at the audience, she said he, quote, didn't have antics. Mary Gaston confessed to a reporter that it had taken her some time to adjust to, quote, the dreadful things the modern evangelist is forced to say in the pulpit. Rhetorical hyperbole was stock in trade for period evangelists, and unfortunately, Bob Jones excelled at this convention as in others, and for the rest of his life, he used hyperbole incessantly in his sermons and his dictated letters. It just drives me crazy when I, when I read it. It's the greatest, the most. There's never been, you know, so, ah, stop. Of course, when speaking regularly to large crowds, Jones of necessity had to be a master of the unexpected. 
Once when a blown fuse left the tabernacle in total darkness for 10 minutes, Jones continued preaching with the words, sometime your life is going to be snapped out just like that and you will not be saved. If he caught audience members chatting, Jones sometimes came to a dead stop, a pause that a reporter said was always foreboding. One chilly night as Jones started to read the scripture, a man began poking at the fire in the stove. Jones stopped reading. The man stopped poking. They stared at each other for a moment. Jones said, don't monkey with the stove while I'm reading the word of God. You had to be a master of the unexpected. I mean, I can't go into all the details, but I mean, you can imagine if you're speaking to five or 10,000 people, there are gonna be people that have mental issues. And sometimes they all arrived at the same time. On one evening, he had a guy run up to the platform, dance a jig on the platform, kiss somebody in the audience, run out the back door and yell, follow me. Immediately afterwards, uh, a woman fainted and then uh, a teenager had a seizure all in one evening. So, I mean, you just had to be on your, you just never knew what was gonna happen. During multi-week campaigns, the contemporary convention was for an evangelist to preach for a week or so before extending an invitation. During an Ohio campaign, a factory official asked, when are you gonna give the invitation? Because he said there were 140 men in his factory that had already signed a statement declaring that they wanted to confess Christ as soon as he gave the invitation. But when Jones decided the time was right, he pulled out all the stops. For instance, in Crawfordsville, Indiana, the reporter noted that Jones, though exhausted from his preaching, gained a new sparkle in his eyes as he approached the invitation. Come on, boys, and be game. Do it tonight while you have the chance. Come on, accept God tonight. Often converts came forward in droves. Converts were given a card that said, I now receive Jesus Christ as my personal savior and hereby confess my faith in him and were asked to indicate their denominational preference. Then ushers cleared out the first four to eight rows of benches and invited the trail hitters to be seated so that Jones, often dripping from his exertion of preaching, could speak to them briefly as a group. Jones emphasized that conversion did not mean turning over a new leaf or doing good deeds but rather accepting by faith God's plan of salvation through the merits of Jesus Christ. Sometimes meetings resulted in so many conversions that the campaign was concluded with a literal parade of converts. In Hartford City, Indiana, 1,200 converts marched through the city to the accompaniment of a band and were met by a continuous ovation as they filed into the tabernacle. In the fall of 1914, a Jones campaign in the Ohio River port city of Martin's Ferry, population 10,000, resulted in 3,000 people professing Christ. As the reporter said, not counting children or, or church members. These are, these are new, new converts. And 2,500 of those 3,000 marched in a parade at the end of the campaign. In Hartford City, Indiana, almost a third of the population professed to have been converted. And the town voted dry, despite a well-financed campaign to try to keep the saloons open to raise taxes. 15 saloons closed. Within a week following the Warsaw, Indiana campaign, 
The newspaper announced that about half the converts, 435 people, had joined Warsaw churches. And the merchants, quote, reported quite a number of instances where people called to settle old accounts or to write dishonest transactions that had taken place years before. The influence of some of Jones' campaigns continued for decades, and many converts contributed to Bob Jones College or sent their children there. In fact, the impact of Jones's campaigns extended into the 21st century when a sizable percentage of BJU students came from Pennsylvania and the old Northwest states of Ohio, Indiana, and Illinois and Michigan. Um, I read a secular scholar who said, yeah, one of the funny things about Bob Jones is you have all these people from Michigan and Indiana coming. Why, how did they get there? It's like, you just gotta know something about history, you'll figure it out. Bob Jones was the last, as well as the last surviving participant in the Moody, Sankey, Moody Sunday era of interdenominational evangelism that ended about 1925. As an evangelist, he was neither an innovator or a sensationalist. Jones didn't sing cowboy songs. He didn't act out Bible stories. He didn't smash pottery in the pulpit. He preferred to work in smaller, more, religious, more religiously homogenous cities than Billy Sunday. And unlike some of his contemporaries, Jones had no embarrassing children and no financial or personal indiscretions that he had to hide. By 1924, he had put about 100,000 converts into the churches of the United States. Um, nobody, nobody really knows. He stopped counting converts about 1916. But if he put 100,000 converts in the churches, that meant that one out of every 1,000 people in the entire population of the United States was converted under his ministry. In his personal relationships, Jones modeled the character he hoped to instill in other Christians. He was punctual. He was frugal. He was terribly intense and willing to tackle controversy. Yet he was gentlemanly even toward his enemies. Shrewd and careful in business, he happily lacked the acquisitive urge that bedeviled so many of his evangelist contemporaries. Mary Gaston called him, called him the most appreciative person she had ever met. Give him warm water for a bath, she said, and he'd be content to live in a log cabin. Jones was also a man of unusual magnetism, a quality that sometimes confounded his enemies. His son called it, quote, an aura of greatness that demanded attention and respect. When he walked into a room, you were aware of both strength and great warmth, but he seemed completely unaware of it himself. Deeper inquiry into how Bob Jones Sr., the 11th child of a poor Southeast Alabama farm family, could have attained such religious stature leads us to places where historians cannot go. In 1946, the middle-aged Jones recalled a summer day at a Winona Lake hotel, perhaps 20 years, years before. He said, some young fellow had just preached. He set that conference on fire. We doctors of divinity sat on the porch, and one of the number said, you know, I don't understand how that young man does it. He's nothing extraordinary. He's not so well-educated. He doesn't have so much ability. He's not eloquent. I wonder how he does it. And Bob Jones concluded that anecdote by saying, God had a way of hiding power in the secret places of a surrendered life. That's something that does the business and let men wander. So what would you like me to answer about Bob Jones? 
be glad to answer questions. Yeah, I've had people, when I've talked to them about the fact that he never mentioned his first wife again, they've been horrified. And, you know, this is something you're just going to have to learn by being older, that people are going to express their grief in different ways. And, and you just can't decide that this is the way to do it and not to, not to do it any other way. I, Yeah. He lost her just, you know, when you think about a child losing their parent right when they're becoming a teenager, you can see that that would be a particularly difficult time for him. Yes, sir. Yeah, yeah, that's, you have to come back some other time and I'll do the second part of his life. Yeah, I, I thought about doing his whole life, but you can see that there's enough here to easily fill one evening without doing the second part of his life. Or, anyway, um, I, can, I have a simple answer for that and I have a complex answer about why he, about why he started the college. The simple answer is that he had a son who was truly gifted, um, at age five, he was wandering around the house with sheets on and playing characters, and he was obviously gifted. And he's five years old, and he's and dad and mom are talking to each other. What are, where are we going to send this kid to college? That's where he's not going to be ruined. And um, so that whole business of thinking through where the son might go to college is what really got him started. But there, that's, that, like I said, that's a simple answer. Um, as far as the timeline goes, um, Bob Jones was started in 1927, so our 100th anniversary is coming right up. And if we had a president right now, we'd be working on the centennial celebration. But because we don't, we have to wait until we get a president. <laughs> um, the school went bankrupt during the Depression, 1933, and moved to Cleveland, Tennessee, started over. And then, because they moved to a small town, there was no place to expand. And in 1947, the school moved to Greenville. Yeah, yeah, I, I thought about putting more about theology here. Um, there really is a good story here. and, and um, 
he was, um, I mean, one of the things, of course, we'd all like to know is how he, how he pulled this Arminian Calvinist together. And that was his, he, he would say, whatever the Bible says is so. And so he was willing to, he just didn't want anybody pushing one way or the other. So he tried to go down the middle as much as he could. There are some oddities about his theology, better read than said, I'm afraid. Yeah. He, he was not in favor of it himself. And, and he said, uh, I don't know of another boy preacher that was ever a success. Um, I think he was actually wrong. M.R. DeHaan was a boy preacher and seemed to do pretty well. But, but um, I think generally that's, that's right. And even himself, he said on several occasions, I, it's a wonder it didn't ruin me when I was a kid because I'd be speaking and there would be people the church would be packed, and there would be people leaning in the windows to hear me. He said, it didn't strike me as being very odd that here I was 14, and there, were all these, there was this crowd around me listening to hear me speak. He said, it could have destroyed me. I, I don't, I, I, I think that's probably pretty true. If you go back, there were other boy preachers and they were mostly, it was mostly a, a kind of charade of. You know, when you started Bob Jones in 1927, you know what happened in 1925? Scopes trial. You know what he had to do with the Scopes trial? Zero, nothing. He said nothing about it. So his association with quote unquote fundamentalism comes very late. So this is not, this is, you shouldn't think about him being, you know, the archetypal fundamentalist in 1925. It's not the way things worked. Yeah, yeah. It's easy to make that assumption. So the business about fundamentalism comes late. No, he didn't like the word. Well, it was a new word. The word fundamentalism was only invented in 1920. And by then, his, his career as an evangelist was, you know, he had already passed his peak as far as his evangelistic career by the time the word was invented. It was something that didn't make any sense to him. Plus, people that he, 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 the thing he associated with fundamentalism was emphasis on the second coming. And he thought that that was a, that was a rabbit trail, that we shouldn't go down that line. So. Yeah. 
Yes, homeschool is really late. <laughs> We're talking about, you know, 20, 30 years ago. Yeah, and it was not especially popular at Bob Jones when it came because Bob Jones was supplying teachers for Christian schools, so homeschooling was kind of aberrant. So, as far as Greenville, um, people made offers to relocate the school, and, and Greenville made a made a pretty good an offer that he liked. So, that's why it's in Greenville. Changed Greenville. I mean, made it a conservative. You know, politically. Yes, sir. Yeah, what happened was he was a post-millennialist until he read the Schofield Bible, and then he became. So I can point you to a sermon in which he's preaching post-millennialism, and then in the same book, he's premillennialist. He has read the Schofield Bible, so, yeah. Yeah, everything's, I mean, everything depends on the Billy, Billy Graham. And so, so it's a, right through the 50s, early 60s, that everybody's sorting themselves out as to what's happening here. And that's what really, that's what really changed everything as far as Bob Jones being associated with fundamentalism. He gave an honorary degree to a Church of God Leader. So, I mean, there are lots of things like that that come early on. You, you've been a great audience. Uh, yeah, yeah. Ah, it's a good question. No. So, he kept as the churches got liberal, he, he tra transferred his membership. The last membership he had was in, in California with Bob Schuler, not the Crystal Cathedral Bob Schuler, but um, his, it was a friend. And, and um, he transferred his membership out there. Um, and then he died, the Schuler died, and they came in, the next guy that came in wanted to send money to the Methodist denomination, and so Jones pulled his membership out of the, that church and didn't put his membership anywhere else. And so he literally died as a person outside. He, he didn't have membership in any church. He always thought of himself as a Methodist. Never, never became a Baptist, although I've seen that in books too. You, you'll see funny things. Um, he became a Baptist when he got to Greenville. Didn't happen. He never became a Baptist. Thank you. I have a question. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, thank you so much for saying on our questions like, um, I mean, some of these may be obvious, like, why, why did schools struggle? Civil War also 
Most of them failed. Right. Right. So, I mean, all the, all the resources went away. They had investments. It was all gone. So, yeah, and the, the South was, it was a third world. It was devastating in the South. So, yeah. <laughs> Come back on Sunday morning, Sunday school, and I'll talk about something completely different about the marriage and family life of Martin Luther, which is just as much fun. So, <laughs> would you like to? Yeah, we'll go to sing and then. Okay.